please open in your Old Testament to a familiar passage, Isaiah chapter 9. It's familiar, I would say, not so much because we've read so much from Isaiah. I think it's familiar to us because it is part of Handel's Messiah. I am not going to sing it to you, but I will read it. Verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As I was looking at this text, I was also um, taken uh, with some thought regarding the United States Constitution. When I read here about the government of Christ, I couldn't help but think of the American Constitution. I am amazed, really, by the foresight of our founding fathers, of our American founding fathers. I'm also amazed by the fact that they possessed a true understanding of human nature, um, a true understanding of politics, rule, and, and authority, uh, in a time when information was comparat- comparatively scarce, the, um, the American library system was still very new. Ben Franklin had just invented it a few years earlier. Certainly, uh, there was a lack of information, and what information did exist certainly did move much slower than what we have today. And yet, our founding fathers acquired an understanding that appears to be rare in our society even now. Uh, you would think that with all the information that we possess, uh, that we would be somehow more intelligent, that we would be uh, better educated, uh, better versed, and yet that's not necessarily the case. And now, in regards to our Constitution, it was ratified in 1787, on September 17, 1787. That would be how many years ago? Very good. Who said that? Oh, it's there. (laughs) I was thinking, wow, some people are really quick here with math. I had to count on my fingers. 233 years ago. Now, according to the University of Chicago, now this is surprising, the lifespan of a nation's constitution is, do you want to guess at that? Don't look at the screen. Is it down there? It's there already? Oh. What is the lifespan of a nation's constitution? The average lifespan? 17 years, that's all. Just 17 years. Isn't that alarming? According to the University of Chicago, the average lifespan across the world since 1789 is 17 years. Estimates show that one half of constitutions are likely to be dead by the 18th year and that uh, by 50 years, um, 19% only remain. Only 19% will last more than 50 years. Meaning that our Constitution's 
a life of 233 years is rather substantial. Would you agree? Now, in regards to governments, the Roman Empire lasted 499 years, and then it was replaced by the Roman Republic, which lasted another 500 years. That's pretty long. And the longest present-day government is that of a 30-square-mile Italian microstate called San Marino. And that government has been in state in force for uh, over 415 years. And of course, we as a nation, our government has been in place for 244 years. Our constitution has been in place for how many? 233 years. Our constitution certainly has outlived the average of 17 years. But let me point out to you here as we look at Isaiah chapter 9, a government that will last forever, a government that will last forever. As we approach the Advent season, let me point out to you what is said in Isaiah chapter 9. Notice there the increase of the government of God, the increase of the government of Jesus Christ. Now, when we read from Isaiah chapter 9, keep in mind that in Isaiah chapter 8, the prophet had made a rather dark and gloomy prophecy, and that gloom was surrounding the people of Israel, the people of God, making the words of chapter 9 that much more desirable. In chapter 8, we find that the nation of Israel was very much engrossed in a cultural faith. In other words, Their heart was not in the worship of God. Their heart did not belong to God. They were, at best, simply an externally religious people. Uh, By the way, God has no no taste for outward, mere outward religion. He is not interested in religious form. He, He wants a devoted heart. The kings of Israel had abandoned God, and so the people followed suit, and they abandoned God. And the result was that they had no heart for God whatsoever. And so in Isaiah chapter 8, the prophet is given a word from God, and he prophesies that there will be an invasion from a very powerful nation northeast of Israel, a nation called Assyria, from where the Ninevites come. The Assyrians is... Uh, a powerful, dastardly nation. It's present-day Iraq. And they will come and cause a great devastation, all because God's people had abandoned God. Keep in mind here that what we see in chapter 8 is not a vicious, vile God. What we see is God keeping his covenant with his people. He is keeping his covenant, and in order to keep his covenant, he is going to do the most extreme. He's going to use the most extreme measures in order to win back the heart, the hearts of the people of God. And so he promises here an invasion, an invasion that will lead to slaughter. The capital city will be sieged. And the people will be starved out. And there will be captivity. And there will be slavery for generations as a result. So as you can see, this is pretty gloomy stuff. 
When they heard the prophet, they were hoping that he was not right. They were hoping that he was a false prophet. But no, Isaiah was a man of God and he was speaking the words of God. And so these were very dark days for Israel. Notice here, my friends, that a nation cannot persist against God and imagine that God is not going to sometime, somehow respond. He responded to Israel. He will respond to Assyria. We see in the scripture text as well. He responded to Babylonia. He responded to Sodom and Gomorrah. What makes us think that God is not going to respond to us? God is intricately aware of how we live and he responds to the actions of a people. And the boots of the Assyrian army are going to march across the land of Israel and they will be soaked with the blood of the victims. And so the prophetic words that I read to you from chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 are actually a very welcomed reprieve. In the center of all this promised despair, God promises relief. This will not be forever. God's judgment of Israel is going to be for a time. And so again, in verse 6 we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will be the sustainer of his own government. Notice there, it says that he will carry the government on his shoulder. He will sustain his government. But take note of verse 7. Take note that two things are going to be in constant increase when it comes to the kingdom of God. The first one is this. There will be a constant increase of his government, of his empire. A constant increase of the government of God. The kingdom of God began at the first advent, the first coming of Christ. The incarnation, what we normally refer to as Christmas. That's when the kingdom of God began. And the kingdom of God perpetually grows. It doesn't stop growing. At times the growth is quick in certain places. At other times it is slow in certain places. But it is always growing. The kingdom of God is a kingdom without borders. And the citizenry of the kingdom of God expands around the globe and throughout history. In the face of persecution, the kingdom of God grows. In the pursuit of truth, the kingdom of God grows. In the proclamation of the good news of the gospel, the kingdom of God grows. And it will continue to expand. Even in places where they are apathetic to the things of God, the Holy Spirit moves and the kingdom of God grows. It will not stop. The church is growing most rapidly. Do you want to take a guess as to where today the church is growing most rapidly? What two countries? 
Iran, and Saudi Arabia. Mark my words, as the church grows rapidly, more so there than any other part of the world, Iran and Saudi Arabia, as the church grows in those two nations, it will change the course of history. For where the Holy Spirit moves and redeems, the church rises up and the nation is changed. Unfortunately for us, today the gospel is growing mostly in those nations south of the equator. (laughs) We're on the north side of it. it. It doesn't mean that the church will not grow north of the equator. It means that most of the growth is happening in those nations that are south of the equator. It almost makes me want to go back to my homeland. Almost. But the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus Christ said it, and he will keep his word. His kingdom will consistently and constantly expand. Why? Because of who Jesus Christ is. Because of who he is, this is what he is able to do. And he will continue to grow his kingdom. There will be no end to the increase of his authority of his government. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15.25 leaps us into the future. And it reads this way. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That is to say that in due time this world will be a footstool for Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ will have his feet on the neck of his enemies. There's a second thing that will continue to increase persistently. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. His peace will also continue to grow. As his kingdom grows, his peace will grow as well. Now, peace is the natural outgrowth to anyone who lives under the authority of Jesus Christ. If you live under the authority of Christ... If his truth is reigning in you, you will find yourself continuously growing in greater inner peace. You will. I know the world says otherwise. I know the world feels like the word of God is a shackle. I remember this one year, uh, this young guy in my my living room said to me, I really don't want to follow Christ because I just want to enjoy life before I become devoted to God. And off he went. And did as he pleased. The last time I saw him, I ran into him at the mall. I said, how are you doing? He says, life is miserable. At least he was honest. He was miserable. But to those who know the authority of Christ, they also will know the peace of Christ. Now, when I say peace, I'm not talking about an external, temporal, fragile peace. No, I'm talking about a lasting, rugged, thorough peace that comes to those who know Christ. And it all begins with an inward peace. uh, An inward peace that surpasses all understanding. So that you will look back and say, well, why am I not nervous? Why am I at peace? 
when my circumstances are so adverse? Why am I at peace when the government seems to be against me? How is it that I can be at peace? Well, that is the reigning peace of Christ. As men and women and children are reconciled to God, the natural outcome is his peace to those who submit themselves to his truth. Now, ultimately, it will one day become a physical, external peace as well. But it begins as an inner peace in those who are abiding in Christ, in those who find that the word of God is dwelling in them richly. There is going to be a day in which there will no longer be any more wars. Today's peace is very fragile. Nations make peace treaties. Neighbors agree and shake, their, shake hands. Relatives forgive each other. Friends reconcile. But all these are fragile and temporary, and we know that ourselves because we've been there. But the peace of God will be everlasting and increasing. And eventually it will overwhelm the warring of this world. I hope you know this peace, this inward peace the scriptures speak about. An inward peace that comes from knowing and living for Christ, trusting in him. I hope that you won't be what one author wrote, a cheese and cracker, peanut-chewing Christian. But rather that you will be lavishing on the rich diet of God's peace in you. Too often all we want is the cheese and crackers. When God is offering you a lavish dish of peace. Not only will his government abound, but his peace will abound as well. Now, in contrast, this world is very, very much so a warring world. In preparing for this morning, I decided to look up to see, well, how many wars uh, happened in this past year? And, well, the truth is, the latest statistic I could find was six years ago, 2014. But it will serve our purposes. Out of the 162 world nations listed, 151 nations were at war with either another nation or within themselves. Of 162 nations, 151 nations were involved in war. And the report goes on to say that the worst part is that we are increasingly becoming less peaceful less peaceful. Only 11 of the listed nations were at peace. Do you want to guess what the first one was? Switzerland, naturally. Do you want to guess what the 11th was? Brazil, surprisingly. Makes me want to go home. But the reign of Christ will bring unending peace. It will be everlasting, and that peace is going to be permanent. The reign of Jesus Christ is a constant reign. Um, Jesus Christ stems physically from the lineage of King David, of course. uh, and, And Christ will reign with an iron scepter. You can follow the royalty of Christ through the lineage of King David listed for us in the Gospels. 
John Calvin wrote that the earthly reign of King David is a token in which we must contemplate the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation of his church to the end of the world. In other words, you can look at the reign of King David recorded for us in the Old Testament and you can see some correlation as to the person and work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. That's very intentional. Revelation chapter 12 verse 5 tells us that Christ is going to reign with an iron scepter. In other words, it will be a powerful, undefeatable rule. As verse 7 here in Isaiah 9 tells us, there will be a constant increase of his government. It will spread and it will overtake. It will be a government that will take everyone and everything and subject them to the rule of God with a transformed heart. Now notice here verse 7 that we're told that he will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He will establish his kingdom, his reign, and he will uphold his reign with justice and righteousness from this time and forevermore more. Righteousness and justice are words that are so interlocked in terms of concept that they are the same word in Portuguese, Spanish, and French. Justice and righteousness. Here we have the two hinges that hold up the gates of God's kingdom. Righteousness and justice. Righteousness is the state of being morally correct. Justice is the quality of being right and equitable. Literally, if you go back to the original language of Hebrew and read Isaiah 9-7 in Hebrew, it will read judgment and righteousness. Judgment and righteousness. That is to say that Jesus Christ has the authority to declare a verdict, to make a judgment call. He has the authority and he will do it in a just way. He will do it in a righteous way. His kingdom will be effective. His kingdom is lasting. His kingdom is worthy. There will be no revolutions in eternity. We read in Psalm 45, 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This cannot be said of any other king. God will reign forever and ever and ever. Now, I really do feel bad for people who cannot see Christ as king. I, I feel terrible for people who do not have this hope of the eternal kingdom of God, that they're placing their hope in the United Nations. That they're placing their hope in, on peace treaties. In order to fully appreciate the coming of Jesus Christ, in order to fully appreciate Christmas, there are two things you have to understand. One, Jesus Christ is God. And number two, you have to understand, you have to appreciate that his throne will never come to an end. Otherwise, all he is is a baby in a manger 
and a time for you to give gifts to each other. If you truly want to celebrate Christmas, understand that he is God and his kingdom will reign forever and ever. And it began that day when he was born and laid in a manger. I think that one of the most sorrowful political pictures is that of the face of a president at the inauguration after he has lost the election and has not gained a second term. It's such a pitiful sight. No matter who the president is, I I feel bad for the man. You lost. After all those years of work and effort, after all that political strategizing, after all those promises and effort, you're standing there to be replaced. Jesus Christ will never have that look on his face. He will never be replaced. Charles Spurgeon read Psalm 45, 6, and he wrote, No throne will ever endure forever except for the throne on which Christ sits. He writes, His reign is just. His laws are just. The results are just. Even when he conquers his enemies with an iron scepter, he is just. He will do no man wrong. We can therefore trust him without any question. He cannot make a mistake. No affliction is too severe when it comes from the righteous God. No judgment is too harsh because he ordains it. You realize that within the Godhead, there does not need to be a separation between the members of the Trinity as we have in our American Constitution. Our American forefathers were very wise in providing a division between executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government. With, with, by the way, the judicial branch, the Supreme Court, being the weakest of the three, very intentionally, because these are not elected officials. They are appointed, and they are appointed permanently. And so, our forefathers, knowing the depravity of man, knowing the frailty of human nature, said we cannot allow any one branch of government to become too powerful because man is corrupt, man is sinful. But within the constitution of heaven, there is no division within the Godhead. For God is good and perfect and wise and can always be trusted. There is no sin in God. Notice here how God is going to do this. That very last sentence in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God's constant zeal will get this job done. Now, I know I've said this in the past, but let me say it again. The force that will cause this to come about is the zeal of God. His passion, his fervor, his eagerness. Literally there, the word zeal means that he is jealous for himself. That's what zeal, that's what jealousy is, isn't it? Jealousy means I am zealous for myself. If I'm jealous of you, it's because I really think highly of myself. 
God does think highly, rightly so, of himself. And his zeal will accomplish all this. When, when, when the angels spoke to Mary and said what was going to happen to her, that through her a child would be born and he would be the Messiah, she looked at the angel and said, how will this be? Well, verse 7 here tells us, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. With zeal comes determination, with jealousy comes resolve. God swings a sword of absolute love, fighting for absolute devotion. And with all his love, he fights to win back your love. Here's the nature of jealousy. We all know how ugly jealousy is, right? We've all known people who are jealous We've all known how repulsive that is. Then why is it that God can be jealous? Well, the truth is, is that God's perfection, God's absolute holiness, actually requires for him to be zealous, jealous for himself. Whereas our imperfection, our sinfulness, our brokenness, makes jealousy sinful. Jealousy will always fight passionately. It will burn to win those it loves, and jealousy will burn the one it fights against. So it is with the zeal of God. It will burn with compassion for your soul, and it will scorch the one who opposes God. Not only will his zeal seek to recover what it has lost, his zeal will consume what it cannot save. So that zeal can be loving or it can be wrath-filled when it comes from the Holy God. But understand this, his zeal will always be victorious. God will always have his way. Always. He will accomplish this. His government will abound, and so will his peace. Now let me make one more point this morning. In light of what we read here in chapter 9 of Isaiah, and in light of the political atmosphere we're living in as we're waiting for this election to come to an end, let me note this to you. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Only God's kingdom will last forever. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. And why is that? Why do governments dissolve? Why do constitutions have a lifespan, average lifespan of 17 years? Why do empires collapse? Why is history filled with wonderful, great leaders? And yet their reigns crumple. Why are second terms not guaranteed? It is because, at his best... Man is still broken. At his best, man is alienated still from God. And as a result of his fallenness, he is controlled by his sinful desires. His lust for power grows. His pride consumes him. Foolishness abounds. Depravity is not overcomable. And the image of God in him is shattered and frail. The image of God in him is overcome by his own flesh. And this is true, not only of our leaders, but this is also true of the citizenry that elects our leaders. 
And so kingdoms come and kingdoms go. One, one writer put it this way. A man at his best is still only a man. So that even the greatest of governments eventually result in failure and disappointment. John Adams, our second American president, wrote this. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. He writes, greed, ambition, revenge would break the strongest cords of our Constitution just as a whale goes through a net. Adams, who was intricately involved in composing our Constitution, said that our Constitution will work only if the people are living up to the standards, seeking out the God of the Bible. He said it will be impossible, impossible for our Constitution to rescue our nation if the people in the nation are not looking to God and living by his standards. So I have to surmise that it will not be our Constitution that will hold our nation together. What will hold our nation together is the providence of God as God's people pray and as God's people seek out the morality of the scriptures. That and that alone will hold our nation together. My friends, the nation is dependent not on a constitution, but on the church of Jesus Christ to raise up its flag and live by the standards of God. And it begins with you. Keep in mind that the United States is not the kingdom of God. Just as the Egyptians were used to give of all their gold to the escaping Israelites, so God has used the fortunes of America to expand his kingdom. And my prayer is that God will continue to do so. But likewise, look, God can use, God can use any person whatsoever to fulfill his predetermined plan. He can use a Donald Trump, he can use a Joe Biden to fulfill his plan. If he can use a proud, pompous, sparring New Yorker, three times married, an owner of strip joints, an owner of casinos, a man with a propensity for adultery, a lover of fornication, a man with a foul mouth whose convictions change like opinions, a billionaire who follows the spiritual teachings of Paula White. If he could use that man to further the cause of religious freedom and provide protection for Christians in America. If he could use that man to stand up against abortion like no other president has. If he can use that man to bring about record-setting employment rates among minorities so that there's more food on their table. And to build a protective wall to defend the sovereignty of this nation. If he can use that man to bring about real prison reform. And to move the embassy to Jerusalem something no other president was able to do. 
if he is able to use that man to broker peace between Israel and the Arab world, to make North Korea cower without a single detonation, if he's able to make NATO pay its own share and defend the Constitution while rebuilding our military and bring back industry into our states and to make us energy independent and to bring about an economic boom, all while placing conservative judges in our courts, then he can use an aging, ailing, true liberal Joe Biden to fulfill his plan as well. Which, by the way, will eventually lead to the permanent establishment of God's kingdom. The problem we face when it comes to our understanding of politics is that we tend to measure politics as to what good will it be for me, when really we should be measuring our politics in, in regards to what will fulfill the plan of God's eternal kingdom. Yes, we should always vote biblically, but our focus should be how can we work with God to expand his kingdom? Who would have thought five, six years ago that Donald J. Trump would make an effective president for conservatives? Huh. Or for anybody that he would be an effective president at all. I remember watching him five, six years ago as a talking head on these morning news programs, and he would offer himself as a potential great, huge president. And I would laugh, Donald Trump, president. And look at what he has accomplished. Who would have thought? God will use any man he wants. And we do not know who will assume the Oval Office in 2021. I think we have a good idea, though. And we do not know what the next four years are going to bring. But this we can be certain of. Our God is building his kingdom. And he is using the unwitting choices of men to fulfill his purposes. They may have meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. He will fulfill his purposes, and the outcome will be the establishment of his eternal kingdom. And we, we, the people of God, will one day stand together, and we will be singing, and he shall reign forever and ever. And what a wonderful sound that will be. Amen. Amen. Fret not. Our God is in control.